being in Revelation, it's not hard. In fact, it's right in front of us to think about judgment. And this is in the notes, just sort of something that's on my heart. And forgive me if, it, if it's just me complaining, but I don't know that it is. You know, we, we think judgment's not going to come. We think judgment can't come or shouldn't come, that we don't deserve it. But just on a Sunday morning, kind of looking out the window and seeing people going about their business, and I'm sure some are going to church. But the majority, I think, of America doesn't care about the things of God. Even those who would claim to know the things of God don't care truly enough about them to have their lives be changed. And, and I get it. You know, they probably don't really know the Lord. They're, they're deceived. They're willfully ignorant. And I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from coming to the Lord, but just trying to look at it objectively. If we take a step back and look at our country objectively, as God might from his perspective, what does he see people in America doing today, this morning, and in general? When he looks at the public school system and what they're teaching five and six-year-olds in kindergarten during story time, who they have coming before these children, espousing to them the virtues, so to uh, quote unquote, of the world. When he looks in the homes, he sees the way the mother and the father act. Maybe the mother and father aren't even together. When he looks on television, when he looks on networks and companies making things specifically for children, the parents lift up and just leave their kids in front of, oh, it's okay, it's for children. And to see the types of things that are being taught to children as okay, does that not deserve judgment? When he looks in the clinics that apparently are there for women's health, but in that back room is a trash can full of baby parts, people going out to dinner, whining and dining and enjoying themselves and Fancy how much money they can make off of murdering babies. When he looks in the highest form of government and sees corruption. And worse than that, when he looks in the lives of believers and he sees those who claim to be believers but live a life anything of and whose gospel is that of the world and of Oprah and of anyone on TV who claims social justice the same way that an atheist would there's something wrong there. To think that we don't deserve judgment even in and of ourselves, the way we act, the way we compare ourselves, the way we exalt ourselves to a place of holiness that is not ours. I think we would honestly say that, wow, God is gracious. God should have judged us long ago. And he did on the cross. He judged us a long time ago on the cross when Jesus died and had those nails driven to him. And for 2,000 years, he's pursued the world, given us opportunity after opportunity personally and nationally and as a race of people, the human race. And we've continued about our business as if nothing has changed and nothing is different.
And the title of this morning's message is The Beginning of Sorrows. The Beginning of Sorrows. And we're actually not going to be in Revelation this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, I kind of felt it was necessary before we get into Jesus' words for the church in the Revelation to see what perhaps he had already said to the church. What he had already spoken about the end times. And look at a few verses. And again, this isn't going to be an exhaustive study. We're going to try and get through two chapters fairly quickly. But I felt that these verses, perhaps for you to read on your own later as well, to do a study, to listen to a message at another time, should be on our heart as we consider Revelation. And even some of the other verses that come up. I mean, the Bible is full of end times verses. We could do study after study about them. This morning we're going to look at these two chapters. If we remember what we read of last week about Revelation, that if we read here and keep it, that there's a blessing, I believe the same is true for the entire Bible. I think Jesus would say, Verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully, I say to you, he would repeat himself. And I believe he's saying these things here. And again, he says some things to the churches that we'll look at in the coming chapters of Revelation. And I think they're related. Again, we tend to skip out on Revelation because we're afraid of it. We're afraid of hearing the message of judgment. We want to hear a message of peace. And like we said, that even in the midst of this message of judgment to come, that the point of it is that we might receive peace, that we might avoid the judgment and receive the grace and forgiveness that we so need. If we remember uh, in Revelation, John is on Patmos. Jesus is in heaven. He's had flaming eyes, white hair, a white robe, a golden sash bronze feet, a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. We read Hebrews, that that's the word of God. It's like a two-edged sword that pierces between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And he had a voice like a mighty trumpet and rushing waters. A beautiful picture. We saw Jesus walking between seven lampstands and he had seven stars in his right hand. The lampstands being the churches, the different parts of the church, and the seven stars being the leadership of those churches. And we remember that Jesus walked through those lampstands and in a sense he inspects them and then he gives a message to them. He's given a lot of messages to us. And I think it's important that we look at what perhaps he's already said about the end times before we actually get to read his final message about the end times. So Lord, this morning we pray that your word would Come alive to us, that Holy Spirit, you would minister to all those who listen and hear and read, and that we'd find blessing in it, but that that blessing would be you, and knowing you better. And God, we pray just for forgiveness for our nation and for our land and for ourselves, that God, you would forgive us and give us another chance before the judgment comes, we pray. God, turn this nation around, we ask. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. As we look in Matthew 24 and 25, we, I think a lot of us, if we've been around the church or a Christian for a while, we know that Matthew 24 is associated with the end times. But we tend to stop there, and I think it's good to look at 25 as well, because I think 25 has some playing into it as well. We're going to take a look at several chunks here together. And the first is... We're actually going to pick it up in Matthew 24, verse 3, and we're going to read up to verse 14. It says, Now as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. One of the things Jesus says is, take heed that no one deceives you. I think we kind of pass over that when we read that. And he says, take heed that no one deceives you. That we as believers need to pay attention and to put effort into not being deceived in these last days. That these days are so dark, are so troublesome, are so full of doctrines of demons and wickedness in high places, that we as believers, if we are not paying attention, we will be deceived. Yes, we'll be saved. Yes, we'll know the Lord, but our lives will be full of deception. We won't be living the way we're supposed to be living. We'll be preaching things we aren't supposed to be preaching, whether we, our life is in a pulpit on Sunday or our life is the bank teller, whatever our life is, we'll be deceived. Because we can't keep rolling through life like everything is okay in the last days. Even just practically, if you look the way the world is in our country in 2019, compared to 2009, compared to 1999, to 1989, 1979, and so on, you look at how much darker it is, how much more deception there is. The fact that with a simple computer program, you can fake a video of anyone saying anything about anything, and it's pretty much believable. Give it a few more years, or perhaps even those who have better technology and better computers, perhaps they're already faking things as we speak. You can make someone come back to life and be in a movie. You never know what the news is saying. All these things that we would say were conspiracy 20 years ago, we're finding out, oh, the veil has been lifted. It's not conspiracy. We just thought it was conspiracy because Everything was still okay in the world, so we were fine living in our little bubble and ignoring the truth. But now that everything is not okay in our world, there's no more bubble to live in. And as a church, we can't pretend that there's still a bubble. We can't digest everything that is told to us on the news, in church, and take it as de facto. Because we're, we will be deceived if we aren't paying attention and we aren't walking circumspectly like Ephesians tells us. That the things that you and I hear on the news and magazines and what the popular culture says, know that the popular culture is deceived. That those who don't have Jesus are more deceived today than I believe they were 30 years ago. Even a year ago. So if you're going along with the way popular culture is going, Christian, if you think you can live your, jo live your life, do your job, go to school, and have a normal life, 
know that in these dark days, these last days, and these aren't, this isn't the end yet. The end will come. Then the end will come. You can't do it. You can't be an authentic believer and live like nothing is going on right now. Live like everything's going to be okay because it's not going to be okay. Well, what's with the doom and gloom, pastor? What's with the doom and gloom? It's the end of the world, guys. Even if it's another hundred years, this is the darkest it's ever been. And don't expect it to get better. That if you look around the world and you see how there is the Arab Spring, there's the uprisings in Europe and Hong Kong and South America and even in America, even over things that possibly are right, they're not being carried out in the right way. You want to know why all those uprisings are happening? I'll tell you why. It's because of the spirit of the Antichrist. He's in the world and the whole world is under the sway of him. And he's making waves and making moves that the world would come together and be ready for him to take the stage as the world leader. Don't believe me? You're deceived. And Jesus says, false Christs are coming. They're going to come in his name. They're going to claim to be Messiah. They're going to claim to be Jesus. And if we just look at the 20th century, look at how many cults have sprung up. I know Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness kind of came around a little bit before that, but look at how they flourished, even to today where they're looked at as more honorable than Christianity. We look at guys like David Koresh, who claimed to be Jesus and had that cult in Waco, Texas. The Hale-Bopp comment. People believe that there's a UFO behind Hale-Bopp and they castrated themselves and killed themselves to ride on it. Jesus talks about wars and rumors of war. The 20th century, uh, as far as I understand, had more death in it than most of human history combined when it comes to war. There was a Holocaust, genocides, left and right, uh, continent after continent, world leader after world leader that killed their own people by the millions. He is to say the Cold War with the Soviet Union the risk of wiping out the entire world population with nuclear war. And now we're in another Cold War again with China. Talk about wars and rumors of wars. Everything on the news you hear is a rumor of war. Jesus says this is the beginning of sorrows. But this is not the great tribulation. As bad as it gets, as bad as it's going to get, until the actual tribulation, this is just the beginning of sorrows. You think it's hard now. You think you're sad now. You think it's ready for judgment and right for judgment now, just give it another day. Give it another year. And you'll see. We in America are greatly sheltered. If you've ever been outside of the country, outside of tourist areas in other countries, you'll see how good we have it. And we think that we have it so good that we can just let in the whole world and it's going to stay this good. It's not. There's only so much to go around and if people come here looking to take, they're going to get. I'm, I'm all for helping people out, but it's got to be done in the right way. When it comes to helps ministry at the church, if someone needs help, sure, we'll give them help. If someone repeatedly comes to us for more and more help, we want to help them get right on their own. When we begin to look at their budget and their finances, 
and what they buy and what they spend and say, okay, well, maybe you need to cut this out and not just continually give them handout after handout because that won't fix the situation. It'll only drain our coffers. Jesus says many will be offended. I believe this could be as opposed to Christians and people being uh, carried away for being Christians and their neighbors are offended and other Christians are offended. Some turn their back. They turn their back on each other. But it's also interesting because we live in a time that is a time of offense where everybody is offended by everything. You might even be offended by this message already. If you were, you probably turned it off. But man, if you can be offended by so much, there's nothing you can do to stop someone from being offended like that. They're going to find something to be offended over. And I guarantee that most of the things people are offended over today, why? It's because it's a sore spot in their life. It's because there's a weight of sin on them that's hurting and it hurts them. Well, I know personally when I snap, it's because I'm under hurt and pain and so on puts pressure on it. And it's not out of them helping. And people today have hurt and pain that are so deep that they question even who they are biologically. And thus, if you begin to, to, to point that out to them, they are offended. That's our day and age. This is the day of offense. Jesus says, lawlessness abounds. Does lawlessness not abound? Look at the last election. Look at the way people get away with things. Have a little meeting on a tarmac. People come here and murder and rape and steal. And they get let go. They don't get deported. They get let go. People want to get rid of the prison system. They want to get rid of the prison system. Somehow going to jail for what you've done wrong is bad. Well, let's get rid of the crimes that they're doing. No, people, crime needs to be punished. Law needs to be enforced. And because of that, the love of many will grow cold. If you're allowed to get away with whatever you want to get away with, why do you need to love anyone? You can just keep being selfish and selfish and get a harder and harder heart. And it is a loveless time. He even said it's one thing for a man to be loveless, right? Men are usually a little bit harder than women. Women generally are a little more in touch with their emotions than men. But if you look at the world and look at mothers who have driven their cars into the river, with their kids in the back seat, trying to kill their whole family, or they live and their family dies, the things mothers are doing to their sons and their daughters these days. When, when the society has lost their women, the society is pretty lost. And on top of that, we've become so loveless that we begin to define love in so many new ways, unrestricted ways. We say, you can love whoever you want, however you want, it's love. That's not love, that is selfishness. And we live in a selfish time. And Mark 13, 12-13, Jesus says, Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. If you and I do preach the gospel, will we not be hated? If you and I preach the gospel on a college campus, will you not be stoned to death? And it says that children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. I'm sure that happens in Muslim countries when a parent comes to Christ and a child says, 
No, under Sharia law, you need to be killed. And even today, this new saying, okay, boomer, this young generation trying to, to throw off the ways of the older generation. Like, you don't know anything, old man. You don't know anything because you're not with it. You're not with the times. You don't understand how much we're enlightened in our day and age. And America used to have respect for elders, and that respect for elders turned into no respect and no mind for elders. Well, we just forget them. We'll put them in a home. And now it's turned to blatant disrespect for elders. What's next? Because this generation, more than any other, thinks it knows it all. But Jesus says the gospel will be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. And the gospel has gone out to the whole world. Translations left and right have come out for, for the past century. Thousands upon thousands of them. Missionaries have reached the whole, every corner of the earth. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, Matthew says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. I think that's one of the most interesting verses in this passage. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. It's like, if people just read this, they would never join a cult. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Forever the carcasses, there the eagles will be gathered together. The abomination of desolation, uh, it's awful idolatry in the place of holiness in the temple. Uh, this happened somewhat in history. A pig was offered there, apparently. But it will happen again when the temple is being rebuilt and they are rebuilding the temple there there's a society getting ready to build the temple as soon as they can figure out a place they can do it as soon as there's some sort of peace brokered in the middle east i feel like that's going to be part of this peace uh treaty with the antichrist that marks the seven years of the tribulation between israel and the world and they set up a place to build a temple on the temple mount and yet still have islam in the outer courts but they're going to build that temple again, and, and the Antichrist will stand in that and proclaim to be God. I don't think he's going to proclaim to be Yahweh, but he's going to proclaim to be God, that all the religions need to come under him. Jesus says, pray that your flight may not be winter, that these people who should believe the words of Jesus and know the words of Jesus would be praying beforehand that when this happens, it would not happen in the winter. So does that mean that Christians are around for this to happen? Does that mean that Christians from pre-rapture? Does this mean a mid-trib rapture? Does this just speak to the Jews of the area? I mean, obviously it's to the locals, so perhaps it's just to the Jewish people who come to faith um, in that time. But it's interesting, especially given some other things we're going to read later.
but they're to flee. I'm going to read some commentary. It says, Those who believe that the events of Matthew 24 were all or mostly all fulfilled in AD 70 have a difficulty here, that there is no good evidence at all that they may believe was the abomination of desolation. The Roman armies or their ensigns were ever set up as an idolatrous image in the holy place of the temple. Uh, instead, the temple was destroyed before the Romans even got there. They actually burned the temple down and the gold ran out of the, out of the stones. Uh, fulfilling what Jesus said, not one stone left upon the other. Uh, but therefore, those who, with this interpretive approach, often redefine what the holy place is, as does Bruce, one naturally thinks the temple, the holy city, or its environs, but a holy place in the prophetic style might even mean the holy land. Uh, and the normal reading of Hagios Topos, the holy place, is the temple complex. But by the time the Romans had actually consecrated, desecrated the temple in AD 70, it was too late in anyone in the city to flee. And that's why Jesus says, as soon as you see this, you need to flee. As soon as you see this begin to happen, you, you don't have time to go home. You don't have time to get your stuff. If you're pregnant, it's going to be hard. And pray it's not in winter. Man, when these hard things come, we need to be ready to go. It's almost like worse than a nuclear event. When you see a nuclear bomb go off, you've got to get in hiding right away. And that's what this is. This is like a spiritual nuclear bomb. And this great tribulation is going to be the worst time ever. It's going to be worse than any war, worse than any genocide, worse than any natural disaster or terrorist attack to have ever happened. And it's interesting that during this time, the worst time ever, it's going to be the most deceitful time in history. That spiritually, people are going to be deceived left and right, believing that's Jesus, believing that's the Messiah, believing this guy's God, believing anything they hear. And he says, if the time weren't short, nobody would live. Nobody would live. God is going to even cut the time of judgment short because if his judgment was fully carried out, no one would make it. And again, you and I are not going to miss the return of Jesus. If we're around then, no one is need to tell you and I that's going to happen. Like we talked about last time, we're going to know. You're not going to need a text message. You're not going to need to live stream it. You're going to know it. It's not going to be any question. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other that we do see that there are two halves to tribulation there's the first three and a half years there's a peace treaty that's signed that really kicks off the seven years that halfway through is when the abomination of desolation happens and then after that is when literally all hell breaks loose on earth in ways that had them before uh, that the last half is worse than the first um, but i wonder what the sign of the son of man in heaven is is a cross or perhaps it's just literally these things are happening just like the Bible foretold, and these are the signs of Jesus. But it says that he will gather his elect, that the angels will gather up all the believers, uh, that you might even consider it like a post-trib rapture here. Uh, but in a sense, I think this could be a gathering up of the people who have come to faith in the last days, that the Jewish people have turned back to him, those who saw the abomination and desolation who flee and hidden, that when Jesus comes back, he's going to gather them up as well. Um, and not necessarily those of us who were here beforehand. 
Uh, Chuck Missler uh, has a good series on the Four Horsemen, and he gives a good breakdown here of Matthew 24 versus the uh, events of Revelation, almost like an outline. So I encourage you to check that out. But it, it's, it's interesting to consider that there may be some of us even listening, some of us even know that miss out on all these other things that happen, and then these happen and we come to faith in these last days. Verse 32 says, Now learn this parable, Jesus says, from the fig tree. You know, he's talking about all these end times, and then he gets into a parable here. He says, When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means pass away. They're not one jot or tittle, not one comma, not one cross of the T will pass away of the Bible, of God's word, until everything is fulfilled. And, uh, you know, this statement of Jesus is one of the central reasons many have uh, looked for all or most of the events to be fulfilled. Um, uh, the commentary talks about, but it's not entirely accurate. Um, uh, you know, I think we could look at it in the sense that uh, it's those who see the abomination of desolation that come to be. That's not necessarily these. But I think you can also look at it in this sense that uh, Israel became a nation on May 14, 1948. Isaiah 66.8 says, Who hath heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. That right after World War II, the UN, or whatever they were calling themselves at the time, uh, I think it was League of Nations, called Israel into being in a day. And in a day they made a resolution. They said these people need their land, and they gave them their land. And I think this is part of the, the whole end times, that Israel's got to be a nation for there to be a temple, for it to have walls and all these other prophecies that come up. But could the generation that saw Israel return to a nation be that generation that sees all these things come to pass? Many of them are still alive, but their time is coming close to an end. I think they could be it in you know, another 10, 20 years, 30 years at the most. You know, Let's say someone lives to be 100, 2048 would be the last of it. And I think in alignment with everything else that's going on in the world, I don't think that it's going to be much longer. I think that a lot of these things are going to be fulfilled in the next 10, 20 years, perhaps. And I could be wrong. I don't know the day or the hour. No one knows the day or the hour. But what Jesus is saying is that we can be instructed in these things. It's just like we can look to the fig tree and say, oh, it's springtime. It's got green leaves coming. It's going to bear fruit soon. In the same way, we can look at Israel, we can look at the times, we can look at the Middle East, we can look at the politics that are going on, and we can go, you know what? It, uh, it sure looks like winter out. Maybe this isn't the winter of Jesus' return, but everything has come together. I don't see any reason why he couldn't come back at any moment now. There's nothing really left that has to be fulfilled for these things to take place. Verse 36 says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, nor even the angels in heaven, but my Father only, Jesus says. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came, 
and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Then two men will be in the field, one uh, sorry, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's speaking to his disciples here. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the world. He's saying that no one knows the exact time. Only the Father knows the exact time. The exact moment, millisecond, microsecond, nanosecond in all of history that he's going to send Jesus back. And how many people in the past hundred years have tried to convince people that they knew when he was coming back? I, don't, I still don't know how people follow that. If they would just read this verse and know that no man knows the day or the hour, how would you ever be deceived by that? But the deception is great, even recently. I think the, one of the key parts here is that it's in the days of Noah. Noah was building the boat. If, we were, if you remember, if we were part of the Genesis study, he was building the ark for 120 years, and then all of a sudden, it started to rain. And the floods came and wiped everybody else out. And they were going around like everything was okay, like the world was great, getting married, giving in marriage, partying without a care in the world. And all of a sudden, this huge tsunami came and wiped them all out. And Jesus says that's exactly the way it's going to be when he returns. People are going to be going about their business, and he's going to return, and that's going to be it. No more opportunity to be saved because today is the day of salvation and Jesus says to his disciples be ready if you're hearing this if you've read this in the Bible anyone who reads this in the Bible God is telling you to be ready even if you are ready even if you can kind of tell the season you still won't expect it in a sense oh there's got to be more time even though I believe he'd come back at any moment I still go oh, it could be a while I think it's still going to catch me by surprise when it does. Really? Now that it happened? I didn't think it was going to happen for another five years. I thought that this would have to happen first. I thought that this person would need to rise up first. Second Peter 3, 1 through 18. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of God's coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, talking about the flood. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We're so worried about global warming and the world flooding that we're forgetting the fires of God's judgment. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, 
but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. You want a big bang? That's the big bang, the end of it, not the beginning. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat? Peter says, stop caring so much about the world. It's all going to burn. Instead, be ready and be hastening Jesus' coming. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter says, get your lives right, believers. Jesus is coming back. Do not be deceived. Do not be caught up with the things of the world, but live for the next world that's coming after. But we see the rapture, uh, basically one person's taken and one person's left. The wheat and the tares that Jesus couldn't separate before because it would tear up some of the wheat when they pull up the tares. But now he's able to separate between the two. That you'll be at work and if you're not a believer, the believer will be gone. Verse 45 says, Who then is faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him rule over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on that day when he is not looking for him in an hour that he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We skip over this a lot. But there's, in a sense, I believe, two responses of a believer or even just of a person to Jesus' coming. Number one is that they are ready, they are waiting, and they are watching, and they are serving until that very moment. That they are busy about their father's business until that moment that God calls them home. And the other thinks God is being lazy, being slack, that maybe his word isn't all true, that maybe they can believe one part of the Bible and the other, that they can go after the lust of their heart. In fact, they begin to attack the other part of the church that is serving, that is doing the work of God. And then more than that, they begin to hang out with the drunkards. Well, who are the drunkards? The drunkards are the people of the world. The part of the church that Jesus said, I'm going to cut in two and give him his portion with the hypocrites, with weeping and gnashing of teeth, meaning hell, are those who claim to be Christian and yet are living like the world. Claim to be a church and yet is really a church of the world. As we become gnashing of teeth is hell. It's outside of heaven. Where you're grinding your teeth in such pain, such agony. Because you're not in. 
Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, uh, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, As surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. If you think he's not coming, you have no idea. You can't say he's not coming. Because if you say he's not coming today, that means you know exactly what day he is coming. But we see the wise and foolish. See, the wise are ready and the foolish say, eh, we'll, we'll handle it later. We'll take care of it later. We don't need to worry about it. We'll have enough time. When he's coming, we'll know. We can go down to the CVS and get some oil and we'll be straight. But Jesus says, watch therefore, pay attention. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 16. And he says, uh, when they asked him to show a sign from heaven, he said to them, when is evening you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So he says, you guys can figure out the weather. You know how the stock market works. You know how the economy works. You know what the world's going on. You know that it's going to rain tomorrow or be nice today, and yet you, you can't even look at the world and say, this looks like the end. He says it's much easier to figure out that this is the end than it is to figure out it's going to snow tomorrow, guys. And Jonah, well, Jonah didn't want to give the message to Nineveh, but he did, right? Nineveh, judgment was coming upon Nineveh. And Nineveh what? Nineveh repented. But we refuse to repent. Verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one. And to each according to his own ability. Uh, and immediately went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought another talent, uh, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But him who does not have, even when he has, will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be people who have gifts from God and don't recognize that it's God or don't realize who God is and don't have a right relationship with him or even are believers, maybe in name only, and they don't make it. Because God gave them plenty of time to use their gifts and talents to him, to serve him. And more than that, what's the real talent? The word of God. God gives us this thing to hold on to and hang on to. And what do we do? Do we invest it in our lives and in others? Or do we bury it? Say, God, look, yeah, there it is. We need to take his word to heart. Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, 31, 32, he says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in his branches. In the last days, the church will have grown into something huge and sprawling and full of branches and denominations that shouldn't be, that claim to be the church, that started out as the church, but have wicked things making its home in them. Mustard seed is supposed to be a, a bush, not a tree. And I think in these last days, there's many branches that are going to be cut and cast into the fire. Many believers who think they've got it all together, but haven't been paying attention, and in fact are deceived, even in the fact that they don't know Jesus. Verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a sheep a shepherd deserve, uh, sorry, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse thirty five For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. See that? That hell was not made for you and I. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. But if we want to go there, we certainly can. Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked, sick or in prison? And did I minister to you? And he, and he will say to them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. They say, Lord. They call him Lord. And where are they going? Not everlasting life. Eternal punishment. We need to be careful. Just because we claim the name of Jesus, just because we go to church, doesn't mean that we're set. That there are sheep and there are goats. There are wheat and there are tares. There are two judgments. Those who are truly the Lord's to everlasting life and reward, and those who are not, who have lived a life based on their works to overcome the judgment. Their works don't overcome it. In fact, they miss the true work of God. Like Micah talks about, to walk humbly, to do justly, and to be merciful. And when we get into back into Revelation, and we read what God has says to the churches, let's be careful not to think that we're the church that gets everything right, that we're the believer who's got everything figured out. Because I'll be honest with you, I've been calling into question a lot of things lately. But the Lord keeps bringing me back to Him. And knowing that my salvation rests on Him alone, not what I've done or what I do or can do or won't do. But do I trust in Him? And am I ready for His coming? I want to be ready for His coming. I believe I am because I'm looking for it. I'm expecting it. And I'm looking for and expecting it because of what He did for me at the cross. If I wasn't confident that everything of mine and all my sin was taken care of 2,000 years ago, all my mistakes, all my selfishness was wiped away, I don't know that I'd be ready. I'd probably be scrambling, running around, trying to do something social justice-like to try and make up for my own guilt. And it wouldn't work. It'd be worthless in the end. And are you ready? Are you watching? Are you waiting and expecting? Or, and that's really the difference between us and the world. What's the difference? You know, we try, we want to be like the world and accept it so much, and we got to get rid of that because we're awake. They're asleep. We're going to be doing things that a sleeping person will never, ever do. Maybe if they sleepwalk, but sincerely, are you sleeping like they are? Are you drunk like they are? And not just on alcohol, but on the ways of the world, on the pursuits of this life, on getting your own name recognized. Are you biting and devouring others like the world does? Survival of the fittest shouldn't be in the church. Shouldn't be a part of a believer's life where to consider others greater than ourselves. And are you continuing on as they have from the beginning, marrying and giving in marriage, not caring if your oil lamp is full, the Holy Spirit, not caring if your life is full of God's things, without a care, without a concern. Oh, he's not coming back. I've got time. I can get saved tomorrow. 
I'll, when I'm an old person, I'll turn to him. Or, you know what? I just believe the things of the world. That there's no point to all this. Things are not bad. Things are getting better. Look at how much is accepted in the world. Don't sleep. Like the world says, don't sleep on this. Don't sleep on this. And God, we pray that, Lord, you would come soon. We're ready for you to come back. And where we're not, help us be ready. That God, we would be found faithful when you return. That you would find us busy about your business. And for anyone who doesn't know you or isn't sure, God, this moment, may they bow their knee, bow their heart and their head and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of all my sin. I'm wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. Even though I have everything in the world, God, I have nothing of you. Give me all of you. Take me home to be with you. And help me be ready for your return, that I would not face the judgment, but receive your forgiveness, because you took my judgment on the cross. Help me love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And Lord, if they've prayed that prayer, help them walk. Help them get plugged into a church. Help them, even if they've been a believer their whole lives, so to speak, but haven't been serious about you, let them be serious and not be held back by their past, but know that they're free to walk forward in you and to be ready and trim their lamps and have their oil. Um, God, we wait for you to come. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light of